Greetings again, everyone. How many of you have known a wiseacre? A real wise guy. I mean, a guy that always has one-liners, that uh, thinks he is the life of the party. At my 40th high school anniversary, I was treated to the spectacle of a real old fellow. He, he was balding, and yet I had to look very closely to realize he was one of my former classmates of the class of 1947, who jumped up on the table and after a few belts of some kind of liquor or another, proceeded to make a complete fool of himself in front of all of the other people, cracking jokes, one-liners, being a wise guy. And then I remembered, oh, yeah, I won't mention his name because these tapes have a habit of going all over the country. And I remembered who he was. Exactly the same mannerisms, the same characteristics, the same attempt to get attention that he had constantly pulled off in all the three years of high school when I knew him so many years before. Seemed that that was still the ploy that he would use. He was the kind of a guy who would wear a lampshade at a neighborhood party, you know, that, that kind of a guy. Would do anything to get attention. There are many of us whose mouths get us in terrible, terrible trouble. And we believe an opposite of a very important scripture in the Word of God, in the book of James. I'm going to turn to that because I want to come back to that a time or two or three in the course of what I have to say to you here today. They disagree with God. They do not admit that this scripture is true. James 1, verse 20, For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. But there are people who will argue with you on that one. There are people who believe that their temper, their way of looking at things, their point of view, is absolutely the way God looks at things, too. I've been struck time and again, I don't know how many times I've preached on the subject, that it's easier to be a Christian in church than at any other time of our weekly existence but that Christianity is not for people sitting in church. I don't mean that it's not for us now. This is a place where we can receive a great deal of information and teaching, but I mean it's very easy to, quote, practice Christianity, end quote, while we're sitting there at attention, being quiet, not saying anything, either caustic or perhaps uh, in any other way, a little bit of smarmy jam smeared over the... Uh, landscape to make someone think they are better than they really are, being a respecter of persons. It's very easy to sit here quietly in church and to be a good Christian. But before we take our seats, after we get up and we mill around a little bit and talk to people, later on on the telephone, perhaps tonight at dinner, through the week in personal social contact, then it gets a little bit difficult. I had to think back as I listened to the sermonette to the time when my father actually had to kneel with a couple of ladies, one on one side of the chair and the other on the other up in Big Sandy many, many years ago over a dispute that broke out between two ladies, one of whom wanted to ladle the beans in the serving line at the Feast of Tabernacles, and the other one was very chagrined because she was sort of pushed out of that position. The the hatred, the animosity between these two ladies got so intense they actually had to be sat down face to face to talk it out with the minister present and be asked to get on their knees with the minister praying with them before they could get rid of the anger 
that was in their hearts and minds. I want to turn to 1 Corinthians 13 and look at these first three or four verses in depth and try to understand what they are telling us. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Have you ever known anyone like that? I remember sitting around the table of Princess Lillian, the wife of former king or late King Leopold of Belgium, and at her table was the head of the German museum system. There were people from all over Europe and Switzerland and Austria. And Princess Lillian spoke fluent English. She spoke fluent Flemish, fluent German, and fluent French. The only time I could show off a little bit was when the maid came or the serving lady came around to serve some food because she spoke Spanish. But I'm there with people who spoke only one or two of those languages, and there were probably about nine people at the table, and every one of them had maybe three, four, five languages, and they were perfectly fluent. The same people would simply be chattering away in German and then suddenly switch to French. And I was just amazed at the knowledge and of the versatility of these people who had grown up in Central Europe. And, of course, all Swiss children grow up trilingual. All children in Switzerland have to learn French and German and English. And they grow up learning or Italian, especially on the Italian side. I beg your pardon. Those are the three national languages of Switzerland, and many of them speak four. Look at this scripture. Though I speak with the tongues of men. I can carry on a fairly lucid conversation in Spanish, but it's slipping a little. I haven't really studied Spanish except to pick up a book once in a great while as the years go by. Listen to a Spanish news, uh, should say news broadcast or a Spanish radio program once in a while. But I studied Spanish for about eight years. But that's a lot of years ago. I can't speak enough French to do anything more than maybe give the simplest of directions to a cab driver or just follow along a little bit in a menu. That's about it. Read a few road signs. The same in German. I certainly would not know how an angel would talk, what language they would use. What if I had, right now, the ability to shift into fluent French, Dutch, Flemish, German? Maybe I could even dazzle you with some of the languages of the Southeast Asian nations. That would be marvelous to be a linguist, wouldn't it? It would certainly be a mark of great study and of, of intelligence. And what about the language of angels? But it says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity. Now, actually, the old King James English word really means an outgoing kind of love, love directed away from the self, love directed toward other people, a charitable love, a sense of humility, and a sense of forgiveness, a sense of loving and respecting another person at least as much as yourself, giving the other fellow always the benefit of the doubt. If you don't have that kind of love, and yet you have all this powerful intellect and all this knowledge, all these years of education and this tremendous ability that could just dazzle people, it says here, you are become as sounding brass, a clashing of a cymbal, it's clashed together, it goes out in its little vibrations and sound waves, and it's gone. It's nothing. A tinkling cymbal, kind of an annoying noise that you hear. That's it. In other words, you're as nothing. And though I have the gift of prophecy, I don't have that gift. I cannot stand here and foretell exactly what's going to happen next week in China. 
I think I have a little bit of a knack about world affairs and an understanding of God's word and prophecy, but I'm not a prophet in the classical sense of the word at all. And understand all mysteries. What are those bay and grizzled horses in the book of Zechariah? And what about all these materials I get, some of them an inch thick, where people have labored? I got one this last week that just blows your mind. A guy has gone through there and gotten all kinds of, of uh, research data out of so many encyclopedias, the Jewish encyclopedia under the, uh, the article of the calendar, and he's gone back and tried to prove that Jesus was born in the spring. And It's just unbelievable research this man has gone into. just dazzles you with the... Thousands of hours people must spend on private research in the Bible. Understand all mysteries and all knowledge. I don't have all knowledge. I got that little tiny bit of knowledge. I can't tell you a whole lot about how a computer works. I, I would be absolutely unable to explain to you what an electrician was doing if he was wiring my telephone switchboard. I wouldn't know what he was doing. I can barely define for you the principle of hydraulics or tell you how a Bessemer oven works or why slag is raked off from molten metal or how to make coke out of coal. There are very few things I remember from my childhood and my education, but all knowledge, all mysteries. And listen to this, though I have all faith. Anybody here got that? I don't. I have two deaf children. I want them to be healed. I have prayed for God to heal them for all of my adult life ever since we found out they were deaf. I don't have the faith to grab them by the ears and say, I want you to hear. If I had, I would do it. I must not have it. But if I did, and yet, I had not charity, an outgoing, humble love directed toward my fellow man, even my enemy, my next-door neighbor, somebody I've never met before, a Chinaman, a Vietnamese, a black from Angola. Though I have not charity, I am nothing. Now, do you think God is going to induct into his kingdom nothing? Is he going to say, come on, nobody, you too, nobody, come on, nothing, come here, zero, goose egg, naught, unaccomplished, unknown, no name, nothing, come on into my kingdom, nobody. I don't think anyone in this congregation believes that. I have had occasion in the last several weeks to see examples that absolutely just, I don't know whether they uh, disillusion me, but I say continually it's easy to be a Christian in church. But to dig in the spurs and haul back on the reins of your mouth when your mind begins to get in motion and your mouth begins to say things that are slashing and cutting and hateful and filled with bitterness and strife and animosity, and which for all the world make you think that perhaps the individual who is caught up in all this rancor and anger would be very, very pleased if, in fact, a Peterbilt would come along and just squash them so flat you could slide them under the door. And they would just say, well, look at that. They died. Because people can get very, very angry out of church. I've had people so angry at me in church I remember one young woman about eight or nine years ago, I preached a sermon and I asked her about the look on her face and she said, I was furious. I said, I knew that. And I said it with a smile. But that's the way the truth of God does affect some people. 
Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. Have you ever read the story of Andrew Carnegie, of all of the tens of millions of dollars he gave away and the great foundations he started, museums and libraries and cultural centers and things that he did to try to share his wealth? Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, just reduce yourself to their level and give every dime you've ever earned to help the poor people. And though I give my body to be burned, you step up and say, take me as the sacrifice, if you hark back to Auschwitz or Belsen or Dachau or Buchenwald or figuratively give your life for someone else. If you do all of this, those great magnanimous gestures of total selflessness and have not charity, outgoing charitable love, it doesn't profit me anything. You are nowhere and you are nobody. So in other words, what I'm saying is, if you don't have that charitable love, however you define it, and it's defined for you right here, you're not going to be in God's kingdom, are you? No, you won't. End of story. He doesn't say anything right here, and I'm not preaching right here about understanding technicalities of the calendar or of all kinds of doctrine. I read very clearly, You shall see, said Jesus Christ to the Jews, the Pharisees, and all the others, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves cast out. He said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And some people are just now beginning to come to understand that. Because Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. And when he was talking about Gentiles in faraway lands who would receive and accept his truth, and he told those people who thought they were so privileged to them belong the oracles and God's calendar and the law, the Torah, the Ten Commandments, the statutes and judgments, and they had great pride in their patriarchal society and its underpinnings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Abraham did not keep the Feast of Tabernacles. That doesn't mean we shouldn't, because to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is a sin. And the holy days were revealed when the church was constituted, to the church and for the church, to reveal God's plan. But Jesus said, the last shall be first. And the first, and we are among the first, the first of the first fruits. And the day coming up, called Pentecost, is a day which really underlines that fact and shows why there are so few of us. We are still in that age or that time when God has not yet set his hand to save the world. He is allowing a witness to go out. And right now it's not that large of a witness. But he's not trying to save the world. You can't tell me of any great work God is doing in China or India or Bangladesh or Taiwan, or Japan, or Korea. You can't tell me how mightily God is moving in Angola, or Cuba, or Haiti, or Nicaragua. You can't do it because it isn't being done. So it's saying here, if we, during the week, after services, once we stand up and begin to mill about and have these interpersonal relationships and conversations, do not have charity, and how is it defined? Well, we'll define it. If we don't have it, we'll never be in God's kingdom. Charity suffers. Charity suffers. I know some people. I could take a name and I could put a name there, male or female name. Ted suffers. You know, just put your name there. Do you suffer? When? At whose hands? For how long? How short is your fuse? How long do you suffer? 
What do you suffer? A little slight? A mistake? An oversight? Somebody says, ah, I forgot. That doesn't do any good, does it? Sometimes you're so mad you could just go stick your hand in boiling water. Somebody forgot. You forgot? How could you forget something that important? Charity suffers. And then it adds the word long. That's amazing. Charity suffers long and is kind. Charity does not envy so much for pushing buttons and ladling beans. Charity does not envy. Charity does not vaunt itself. You ever known a person who does practically nothing but talk about the great things he's done? A name dropper? Someone that talks about how incredibly important and powerful he is, that builds up his own image, and continually talks about himself? Charity does not vaunt itself. I remember an interview with a very famous black basketball player, the Los Angeles Lakers, many, many years ago. I was quite struck by that one young man. He was very slight and slender. He was a very good basketball player, but one of the lesser-known ones. And Chick Hearn, who was a very famous sportscaster in the Los Angeles area, interviewed him and asked him a little bit about his game. He said, well, I'll tell you, Chick, he said, I owe everything to basketball. If it hadn't been for basketball, my parents wouldn't have a decent place to live. If it hadn't been for this game, I wouldn't be making the kind of money I make. I wouldn't have escaped from the place I grew up. I grew up in a terrible neighborhood. And he was just so grateful and so humble and so able to articulate the gratitude that he felt for being able to participate in that sport and to have been chosen as a professional and to make 60, 80, 100,000, whatever it was, he wasn't one of the better paid, but to make a real good salary for doing what he loved. And I was very impressed with that because he was humble about it. He was certainly not puffed up, as many athletes can become, and can believe, as Muhammad Ali is the exact opposite end of, the, of that particular pendulum, of someone that says, I am the greatest, you know, and uh, just makes you uh, turn away with a look of, of uh, disdain or whatever on your face because you can hardly stand the oozing vanity that comes from someone like that does not behave itself unseemly, is not always after its own things, its own way, does not seek her own, is not easily provoked. I want you to think about how many times you have provoked God. And I want you to think about yourself. There's an old, old adage about not crying over spilled milk. How many mothers want a child or a visiting child or a grandchild We'll just have a disaster at the breakfast table. We'll come unglued. What about an expensive piece of crockery or china? What about a piece of bric-a-brac that you really treasure and like? A little piece of crystal or something, a little delicate uh, piece of glass with a giraffe's neck or something, and the kid breaks it. Or the proverbial kid who visits and he pulls the oatmeal bowl up and puts it on his head full of oatmeal. You know, I have seen people just come completely unglued, just come absolutely apart over a minor little incident that will take less than five minutes to clean up. And it shows you that the last way in which we mature is emotionally. And many people, like the one I saw at my 40th high school anniversary, just never make it. They never grow up. They remain emotional children all their lives. Now, I could say the last way we mature is spiritually, and that really is a truth, because we mature spiritually last of all. 
Some people, even though not Christian, not converted, are emotionally stable and mature. They're able to control their temper and therefore their mouths. And they are, as the Bible says, eager to hear, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. And the Bible says even the fool, when he holds his peace, is counted wise. But there are many people whose mouths get them in trouble just about all their lives. I remember an example many, many years ago, a young kind of a cock-of-the-walk minister. He'd heard all of these wonderful sermons. He'd read all of these things. He'd been to the college. He'd heard about power and authority and authority and power and government until he was just saturated with it. Well, one day he was going too fast, and the policeman pulled him over, the siren going, the red light blazing. And I mean, when that young policeman walked up, this man rolled down his window, and he proceeded to tongue-lash that police officer. He said, young man, you have no power but that which my heavenly Father giveth thee. <laughs> He's pulling off a, a little kind of a play-acting deal like he thought he was Christ, or like he thought he was the Apostle Paul before Agrippa. Now, it says, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But this man was not suffering as a Christian. He was furious because he was so, I've used this term at the uh, Days of Unleavened Bread up there at Mineola, swole up. Remember that one? He was so swollen up with his own idea of self-importance that to him, the ministry, and I don't know if he's ever gotten over it, was the great huge badge of authority. It was the Congressional Medal of Honor. It was a chest full of fruit salad. It was the scrambled eggs on the visor. It was the epaulets of solid gold. And to him, he had all this great power. He represented the power of the universe. And who was this young traffic cop to give him a ticket just because he was speeding? Well, he had things a little wrong, didn't he? A soft answer turns away wrath. But some of us never learn that. Now, it is not puffed up. It doesn't seek its own. It's not easily provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not immediately impute an evil motive. Years ago, when we didn't have anywhere near the kind of licentiousness and pornography and just uh, constant din in advertising, literature, music about sex and promiscuity, there were jokes that people could play by going down the highway and reading a road sign and then putting a second meaning to it. I remember one time when my sister, and she's not in God's church, and the young man whom she later married took a picture that they thought was very, very suggestive. Got out of the car, walked over to the roadside, and she stood there with a hit out like that, and he snapped the picture, and I remember the picture, and she was smiling by the sign, and it said, Dangerous Curves. Ooh, they thought that was evil. Thought that was evil. Now, actually, they thought it was cute. But, you know, have you ever played that game? I don't want to tell you which one it is because I don't want to get kids started on something. But there are people who can say something that means only the, the purest, nicest thing. But you can take it another way because our language is funny that way. Many nuances of the, of the English language are capable of more than one meaning, just like you can look at things two different ways or even three different ways and see different things in it. I want to hurry along with this because I have some very important parts of the Bible I want to get to to show you a little bit of an outline that is based upon 1 Corinthians 13. And notice the order in which God places these three great gifts of his Holy Spirit. 
rejoices not in iniquity, verse 6, but rejoices in the truth. So, it is not someone who says, oh, really, tell me about it, what happened? It is someone who says, oh, really, you got some bad news? Do I have to hear it? Is there any way that I'd be better off not having to hear it? Would you just soon not tell me? Bears all things, believes all things, that means believes the best, of course, hopes all things, endures all things, charity never fails. When I was a child, he said, I spoke as a child, verse 11, and I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things, because children are on a short fuse, and they react completely differently. But finally, in verse 13, now abideth faith, hope, charity, an outgoing charitable love, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Did you know that James, Peter, and John, the three of the chiefest, and there were others, apostles, of whom the apostle Paul said, I was not a whit behind the chiefest apostles, were inspired to write in their books one book from James, where the dominant theme is faith, two books from Peter, where the dominant theme is hope, and three books from John, where the dominant theme is charity or love. Now, you all know that John was that disciple whom Jesus loved. And every Passover, we read excerpts from the 14th through the 17th chapter of the book of John of how John was the one who was actually leaning on Jesus' chest when he dipped the sop and gave it to Judas and confided in him who it was who should betray him. John was inspired to write about love. He is the one who gave us the very definition. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous in 1 John 5, 3. And there must be a dozen places in John's three books, shorter little letters, about love. Many occasions in Peter's two books, First and Second Peter, about the hope that is ahead for us. But let's take a look at the book of James, where he begins right away in the first six verses mentioning faith at least twice. He writes to the diaspora, or those who were scattered abroad, greetings, my brethren, count it all joy. When you fall into different kinds of temptations or trials of your faith. I have had occasion to see in the last few weeks people who counted all hatred and rancor and anger and chaos and broken glass and shattered mirrors and spilled salt and dumped oatmeal bowls to fall into a problem. It destroys them. It just drives them crazy. It causes them to explode in anger. They cannot contain or control themselves. How many hundreds of times have you read that scripture? How many dozens of times have we heard it out of the pulpit? Count it all joy when you fall into different kinds of temptations. I've said for all of my adult life in the ministry that human nature is the exact opposite of the nature of God and that reacting according to Jesus Christ and his own life to be lived over again within us of the new creature in Christ that is supposed to dwell within us is the exact opposite of your normal response. That being a Christian is 180 degrees opposite from the human response. The human response is nearly always wrong. We certainly carnally do not count it joy when we fall into a temptation or a trial, be it physical, mental, on the job, financial, sexual, having to do with interpersonal social contacts of some kind. 
I remember the lady who got up in a huff in the football game and just said, I'm leaving, to her husband. And he said, why? He said, because they've been out there for the last time, getting out there in a circle, talking about me. And she went home. And some people can't stand it. They are positive that if they walk by a group and they're talking and they laugh, one of them happens to glance over there, they feel terrible because they know they were just talking about you. And they probably weren't at all. Don't even know you're alive. But that shows how super sensitive we can be. Knowing this, verse 3, he mentions that the trying of your faith works patience. Now, I've had a great trial of my faith lately. And I will probably have a lot more before I get to be 70 or 80. And it's tough. And you have to endure. And you get weary with enduring it until finally you begin to wonder if you will be able to endure it. And it says to me here that it works patience. But the next trial, I expect, will be more difficult. It'll be one more rung up the ladder. Because just like a weightlifter, if you get on here a weight loss program and you start out with little dumbbells that only weigh about five pounds, in a few weeks you might be working with ten pounds and then fifteen pounds. And if you go into serious weightlifting, maybe a hundred pounds lying on a bench and doing, as we say, curls until you can really build up the pectorals and the arms and so on. Because each little step that you take in conditioning your body, you're prepared to take on an additional weight. And so it is spiritually, emotionally, and, and with your, your mental capacity, your mental control over your temper. Faith works patience. Let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, not lacking anything. Now, God is going to induct perfect and entire people into his kingdom. How much faith and patience did Jesus Christ have? You know the answer to that. That example that I've given so many times, it's in the Word of God. I'm not the person who dreamed it up or thought it up or say that I gave it. It's just in there of Christ on the stake saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That is the epitome of love and of faith and of Christianity. And there is no greater example in all of the Bible than that one. And yet when we see the slightest little examples in interpersonal human relationships among people who are in God's church and who believe they are Christian, which blows their temper and they're on a short fuse and they can't handle themselves emotionally, it is a little bit of a disillusionment, a disappointment. And you have to say, well, I, I, I wonder how really converted some of these people are. Are they really converted? I mean, I know we understand the Sabbath and the holy days, and hopefully we're tithing. I don't know whether we are or not. I have chosen not to go look. I could, but I don't. I don't know. God knows. That's his business and your business. But deep down inside those hearts and minds, the control of those tempers and emotion, that is another question, isn't it, according to these scriptures we're reading. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally and upbraids not, and it shall be given. But let him ask in faith. Notice twice within six verses, James is talking about faith. Nothing wavering or doubting. For he that wavers, you ever done that? I know women do when they go to pick out a pair of shoes or a hat. Now, I do if I go down shopping for golf clubs. I mean, I'm not just going to pick on women. I, I waver, you know. I, I know that a lot of times it's bad. You don't want to give a kid a quarter and say go to the candy store. You go to the candy store and get him a candy bar and give it to him. You drive the poor kid crazy. 
He goes in that candy store, and there are about 14 dozen different varieties, and you've heard the Cosby deal about it. I said, that one, no, not that one, the one over next to the brown one. And finally the man says, kid, would you please make up your mind? My back is hurting me because granddad gave the kid a quarter, and he goes to buy a candy bar. Nothing wavering. He that wavers, can't make up his mind, filled with indecision, is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man can't make up his mind, double purposes, mixed up goals, isn't, isn't really sure, is unstable in all his ways. If he blows hot and cold, if he seems to be a real decent man one, one time and then just like a lion with a wild, uncontrollable temper another time, he's unstable. He wouldn't be a good business partner. He wouldn't be someone you'd want to trust on the job. In verse 12, blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive a crown of life. You see anything there about doctrine, about understanding Greek and Hebrew, about deciphering Babylonian cuneiform, figuring out the calendar, looking at the shadowy types of the sacrifices and their implication for Pentecost? Do you see anything there at all about any kind of a doctrine? But being tried, and when it says trial, it means faith and patience. It means mental anguish. It means concern. It means fear. It means doubt. It means all kinds of anxiety. Problems come. How do you tackle them? How do you handle them? Do you endure them with a stolid implacability, giving the problem to God, resting on Jesus Christ as John did at the Last Supper? When he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, God is doing it, that God has interfered. Why does the Lord do it? Why is he picking on me? Why me, O Lord? As many people are tempted to do. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when his lust has conceived, when he's really thought about it deeply and allowed it to become full-blown in his mind, it brings forth the deed or the act, sin. And sin, when it is finished, when the act has been accomplished, brings forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness. He is single-purposed, single-hearted, single-minded, has one goal. He said, I change not. There is no shadow of turning. He always goes straight toward his great goal. Of his own will he begat us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God is reproducing after his own kind. I know people who, in a spate of anger, have broken furniture. I know people who, in a spate of anger, have injured another human being. I did know, but I no longer know, one young man who, in a spate of anger, shot his wife with the 357 Magnum and then killed himself. They were in the midst of a divorce, and she was walking down the corridor in the court building. And he walked up to her and shot her, and then shot himself. Now, there are some people that you can't tongue-lash the way that minister did that young officer, aren't there? There are some people in this society who will react very unpredictably and with crime, and drugs, and at least every twelfth car out there with a gun in it somewhere, under the seat or in the 
glove compartment or maybe in a rack up here in a pickup where you can plainly see it, it does not pay to spout off and, as we say, badmouth somebody in public anymore, does it? Because you don't know who they are and you don't know what they might do. You don't know if they're going to turn around if you say something to them or give them some kind of a horrible, obscene sign in your automobile, and you're in a chase for your life, and maybe they're shooting at you before it's all over. There was an account way back when CBs first became popular of a couple of people who got into it arguing back and forth on a citizen's band radio and decided to get together and fight and pulled into a driveway and jumped out, guns blazing, and one of them shot the other one. And they didn't know each other from Adam. But because of their mouths just saying things on Citizens Band Radio, they got into an argument. Let no man say when he is tempted, he is tempted of God. But if drawn away of his own lust and enticed, then lust, when it is conceived, brings forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift comes down from above. And I got to that point. Verse 19 that I referred to earlier. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. You have never seen an example of a more righteous man than a wrathful one who thinks he's right. You've never seen a more righteous example. A more absolute self-righteous example of someone who, as we say, will go the nth mile, the proverbial last mile. I mean, he's ready to walk the plank. He's ready to take, you know, walk up to the hangman's noose. He says, on a stack of Bibles with a bayonet in my chest, I don't care. He knows that he and God are on the same side. You and me, Lord. And he is furiously angry, and he knows he's right. But he's not. The Bible tells me that the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. I think time and again to the example of lonely old Jonah when he was forced to carry that message to Nineveh and when he finally did walking, dragging seaweed for several days to that large city, crying out of the top of his lungs that God was going to destroy it. And lo and behold, the worst thing that he could begin to imagine, old Jonah just hated it when those people repented. The king feared and repented and called a national day of fasting and repentance and even refused to give fodder and water to the animals and said, let them fast as well. The whole nation lift up its voice in mourning. And God heard and decided not to destroy them. And Jonah was so put out with God, so angry that those people had had a chance to repent, that he built him a little booth and sat there with the sun baking his balding head, furious, holding his chin in his hand, staring down across the burnished landscape with the heat waves coming up around the walls of the city, wondering when the nuclear fire from God was going to incinerate at least 100,000 people. And God caused the castor bean, they're a very rapidly growing one, and this one was miraculous, to grow up. And it gave a nice bit of shade there, big, thick castor plant. He looked up and he was glad, as it said, for the gourd, but it was not a gourd, it was a castor bean. Probably thought, what a lovely plant. It's a beautiful plant. He got in the shade of it and looked at the leaves of it enjoyed it. It was cool under there. I love these trees outside and plants. I'll look at flowers, pick up beautiful flowers and look at them real closely. And I love plants. He loved that plant. And the plant died. God caused the sun to wither it. And he felt real bad for the plant. 
Oh, he was heartbroken for the plant. Look at the poor plant. There it is, brown, shriveled up and withered. It was so green. Still waiting for 100,000 people to die. And God said, Dost thou well to be angry for this withered plant when all of these souls down there have repented? And you know, we don't really know what the final outcome was because Jonah said, Yeah, I do well to be angry. Jonah thought, and maybe his book is in the Bible for that purpose, that the wrath of man works the righteousness of God. You can know a few points of truth and have a point of view. And when someone does you wrong, you get angry and you tell them off, and it was just you and the Lord doing it. Right? Wrong. You're wrong every time you do it. You'll be wrong the next time you do it. You'll be wrong the time after that. And you'll be wrong the time after that. And eventually, if we do not allow Almighty God to give us the control of these human physical tempers of ours, of our mind and our mouth, and to put this beautiful, loving, merciful, long-suffering, patient, kind spirit of Jesus Christ, who there on the stake dying says, Father, forgive them. Have you forgiven someone who slighted you, who forgot about you, who snubbed you, who said something evil against you, took something that belonged to you, is a bad debtor who didn't repay you, borrowed money and never paid it back, someone who made a snide remark to a third party, someone who gossiped about you. If you haven't, how can you face Jesus Christ in any sense, weekly or daily, and ask him to forgive you? Isn't that one of the simplest lessons of all of Christianity? I'm sorry to have to bring it to you again. It's just that it seems week in and week out, month in and month out, I am forced to come face to face time and again with the fact that for all of our preaching about these vaunted and wonderful spiritual qualities of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, of basically what is Christianity that we tend to forget, and we think that the wrath of man works the righteousness of God. But it does not. Faith, hope, and charity, and the greatest of these is charity. Charity.